this episode, previous artist-in-residence Joan Jones joined Learning Officer Tom Goddard in conversation to discuss his life, practice and inspiration, recorded in January 2015. Do you feel your return to Swansea and, and to Mayhill has changed your life and the way that you work? Um, I think it, it changed my life in, in the way that before I never really considered a career as an artist, as something I'd formally do. Before coming back in, well, 2003, I had a practice based in, in London, which was much more to do with, like, like I was, I was producing uh, a lot of music and live performance by myself and with different groups and bands. Truly Kaput it was, is one of my vehicles, so, like, uh, writing my own stuff, um, which I performed solo on ukulele. Um, this is at the BFI, yeah? This is at the BFI at the London Gay and Lesbian Film Festival in 2011. Um, so it's something, that's something I went back for. Um, so yeah, like it, it kind of, like, like coming back to Swansea made me sort of reassess. That was the point where I entered like a formal like art education. So before, like my practice was very much like, like you know, it was just like DIY, working, doing stuff at my friends' nights, organising my own nights. I mean, this, this is me and Colette Rosa, who uh, performed quite a lot. This was in Cardiff, actually, as Gender Fascist. This was the Batties. Yeah, we were doing a night in London called Home of Crime. And yeah, like, the Batties did open for one of the first gossip shows. And yeah, this is like single club stuff. So yeah, um, professionally, I think my life changed. And it, it was really great because my health wasn't good on returning from London. It all like led up to sort of this, I suppose. Like, these, it, were all like, these were like mini... CD CDRs, yeah. Like we had a, it was a singles club, so every month we'd produce a different single to sell. Interestingly enough, coming back, like I suppose one thing it did is in London, I always had this network of people who who were like producing stuff of a a similar vein to like what I was doing. Obviously, the sudden, the short, sharp, sharp, shock of coming back to Wales, I didn't have that network anymore. Uh, it was really important for me, like when I was on foundation and when I started my degree, like to develop, um, which is quite nice because, like, I kind of had a Wales phobia um, living in London. It was like I, I didn't want to be involved with anyone working in Wales because, like, it, it only represented bad things to me. But like since coming back, it's it's been like a positive, like meeting, like doing stuff like framework. Like it was really important for me that that was going on because, like, there was the art school and people doing stuff in Cardiff, and then there was framework. Which, you know, like, I prefer to operate at a more grassroots mm-hmm. level. Uh, and, you know, like, who gets an opportunity like that, like, you know, to do stuff every, every month mm-hmm. in, in front of your friends? And, um, so, yeah, my life did change quite significantly, and, and I'd say definitely for the better on returning to Wales. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a bit about um, the influence of maybe foundation at Swansea as well? I was doing stuff in London, and I didn't really think of myself as an artist. Like, I left school, I didn't have any uh, A-levels or, or anything like that. Like, I, did, I wasn't really interested, but, like, I was just doing stuff by myself. As I say, like, I came back to Wales, it was, like, the ground had fallen out a bit. So um, I was talking to an artist friend of mine, Emma Hedditch, and I was like, I don't really know what to do, I don't know anybody here. It's like, I'm, you know, I'm going crazy. And she said, like, Joan, like, you're an amazing artist. Like, why don't you look, see if there is a Art and Design Foundation programme in, in your city? And I did. And, like, I think, yeah, it, it turned out to be one of the best years 
of my life. Like on Foundation, my work developed from being just like I was doing zines and stuff and doing live musical performance. But like on Foundation, I, I developed a practice which included spoken word and to, to present it quite a lot, I'd, I'd make these sort of videos. So uh, and like I was like playing around with different a costume and like different like um, identities mm-hmm. and stuff for like different characters and like they'd be conversing, having dialogue. That was a new element that like, I didn't have. Like when I was working in London, it was just like you'd get up and you do whatever and, and that would be that and so like yeah like I suppose like it was the first time I like I, I took like documenting seriously even though like I'm, I still struggle with documenting my work today. So what was the one seminal cultural in- influence and experience that blew the mind of the young Jim Jones? I have to say and uh, like I don't know if it sounds like totally obvious or anything but like as, as a teenager like I was a big Mannix fan and yeah the Mannix were like super duper important to me uh, for several um, levels but yeah like I think what was so great about them is it's like obviously yeah the Mannix is somebody who's like, like, like obviously like growing up like I didn't really I, I felt like sort of gender dysphoric and depressed and obviously like the whole image meant a lot to me like the you know like Richie Stencil and Nikki like I identified with that like, like you know like the teenage thing like being bored in your, your bedroom and but like I, I think uh, what was also really really pivotal about like getting into the Mannix was what we talked about like you know it was in- incredibly uh, literate mm-hmm. so like you know I, like, I always you know loved reading and you know I wanted to be a poet growing up mm-hmm. and so you'd look at like a, a Mannix like if you take uh, Generation Terrorists the first mm-hmm. like Mannix album for every song there's like, like a li- literary quote so like uh, you know through the Mannix I discovered like stuff like like Sylvia Plath and I, I don't William Burroughs like you know like like by the age of like 12 or something I was reading like Naked Lunch that sort of thing like it, it meant a lot to a lot of people who were like actually in like in towns and like intelligent like to have something that visible and like uh, like it, it's the first time I ever like got a zine for example like like I, I'd get select magazine and I'd be like oh there's people writing about the manics and yeah, like yeah. you know like like you, you you know you'd get a zine through the post and I've still got them yeah yeah and so that like the manics like introduced me to zine culture as well so mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. and that's still like a really active part of my practice now the only thing on a par I can think of is like maybe Kathleen Hanna's work mm-hmm. in the Tigra and like, like uh, again always like you know you should reference your heroes your influences like um, and, and the, of course the Smiths which you know I was a massive fan of the Smiths when I was a teenager too so what's what really struck me reading reviews of the Holy Bible when it came out when I was a kid and people saying how it was about Richie James Richie Edwards's this psychosis this kind of mental illness you know it was like this testament to him being ill and it wasn't it was an album that was about the way the world is Is. and about truth that's why it's called the Holy Bible Bible, because it's an album about truth it's an album about all of the things that happen in the world presented in a sound format like these days uh, if someone could sort of present themselves as a genius like someone who's like able like to articulate stuff which again is like brushing over the carpet in our culture mm-hmm. they come out like under fire like you know there's a historical precedent that our creative people can be quite self-destructive as well yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like if you think about like Nico Iggy Pop says in like a hundred years time take Nico's 
later albums, the ones she did with John Cale, and, and just, just listen to them, and they're like, it's like, whoa, it's like, like you can't, you, actually, you can't tell what Nico's references are. It's so singular, it's so this, yeah. it's so thing. And yeah, Iggy Pop says, like, in a hundred years' time, people will have, will finally get their ears to hear the genius in Nico's work in the same way it took a hundred years for Van Gogh's paintings. So yeah, but that's like a time thing. I don't know, am I answering your question about... No, that was, that was great. Um, and who knows where Richie is now? Like, like I hope he is... Um, he's got his own chip shop, apparently. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe one day you'll be buying chips. That's it. So can you describe the influence and inspiration of, of Stevie Smith, perhaps, on, on your life, then, on your career? Stevie Smith... Uh, it's just someone I, I really like for her work and her poetry. This is Stevie. No, that's Gertrude Stein. Yeah, that's Stevie. And uh, I don't know, like, I, I think because she's always perceived as this eccentric, and she was, you know, she was somebody, you know, she, she lived with her aunt <laughs> in Hampstead in this, like, decrepit, like, house and made her, her work. But um, yeah, it's, it's always really difficult one when people ask why, because like, the name of my the current project I'm working on is just actual life and Stevie Smith. But yeah, like I don't know why it's called that. I just I just like the way it sounds, yeah, yeah. and I don't think I have to have a reason like for naming anything. I I think she like I think she was like viewed as like a, a spinster and perhaps um, a lesbian. Um, but she she I don't think she was. And I think she had quite like um, an exciting social and sexual life. So maybe that's why mm. I call it that. So let's so talking about working and your kind of uh, your working routine. So how, what what kind of routine do you have for writing or for? Uh, and does that sort of change in terms of certain hours in in the day, certain times of the day? And does it change when you work live or when you work musically or when you when you work with words? I mean, it's, it's really difficult for me to have routine. Like, again, I respond really well. Like, if I know something's got to be presented, then I'll get on with it. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's no routine as such. Is that? I don't know. I think there is a routine. <laughs> oh, <sh> <laughs> uh, and, uh, Do you think the routine is um, I think I think, Joan, uh, I think you uh, come in uh, midday... Afternoon, I think you. I'm not a mornings person. Definitely not a mornings person, but I think you have these. You you know you you if you know people are coming, then you entertain a little bit, and then you and and, and you do that, and that's all part of it. That mm. you know that having those conversations, having people, in, that's that's as much research work. or work it's or yeah, whatever. It's research, you know, it's, 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 it, that that's really important to you, um, and also. Um, I suppose the, the I think what I've noticed is that you do quite a lot of hosting when you're uh, yeah that's really know? Uh, whether that's with meetings or whether that's uh, you know friends or whatever it might be I think that's that's uh, very important I think that's something well like, it's it's essential because like like I say like um, if there wasn't people coming in to see the work like I you know uh, like it would be there'd be no point there'd mm. be no audience mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it's it's like the the talking and the uh, the the life the lifestyle is very important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I think uh, if you're an artist, you should 
like surround yourself by like like almost like a, like who have I had in there? You've had uh, Terence Higgins Trust. You've had uh, the Mormons. The Mormons in there. That's true. Yeah. You had the uh, Good Vibes group in there. Well, I, and I have people in there all the time that you're yeah, probably not aware of. Yeah. Well, so. exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but is this why you've put up Gertrude Stein? Yes. Like, uh, of course, with Gertrude Stein, she claimed uh, she'd only uh, write for half an hour a day. Mm-hmm. But she said oh, over a number of years, that does generate a lot of writing. Um, but like the rest of her time was spent like like she she meditated so like I think there's an internal process you have to go through especially if you're you're producing experimental work. Um, but then like the other important aspect was like uh, like again the 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 idea of the salon. So you know she'd stay up like late into the evening like, and have artists. And like all, all sorts of people around for a chat, and she loved talking. And that was in Paris, wasn't it? In yeah, twenty-seven Rue de Fleur. Yeah. And of course, her partner Alice B. Toklas, yes. um was was there because uh, Gertrude Stein uh, spoke to the men. So predominantly at the time, like obviously, like artists were men, and Alice B. Toklas would be there to speak to the women, mm-hmm. to the wives. Um, Do you think the biography that she wrote? Of Alex B. Toffles is about Gertrude Stein, a mixture of the two of them. Or nah, it's man, it's, it's a complete device, isn't it? Like, yeah. it's it's uh, this is uh, a, a genius thing she does because, like, by framing it through her, like, the gaze of her partner, mm-hmm. um, she can actually, like, you know, like, um, like there's there's one passage where Alice, Alice B. Toffles says, "I have only met three geniuses in my life. One was Picasso." Yeah. The other was Walt Whitman or something, and the other was Gertrude Stein, and the bell has rung within me every time, <laughs> and I've never been wrong. But like, it's it's Gertrude Stein writing that about herself. <laughs> um, so yeah, it is. Like, there's maybe about Alice B. Toklas herself. There's maybe twenty pages of like the first chapter, and then the rest is is just Gertrude Stein writing her own story, but in the the third person. So have you any rituals about your work and your methods of working? Any superstitions? Um, I don't know. I think I'm quite, like, even though, like, I need, like, people constantly around and, like, I need audience, I'm quite surreptitious about Mm -hmm. my work. I don't really like anyone to see it. It taints it in some way. Mm -hmm. Until I'm forced, forced to. (laughs) I mean, meeting people in your studio isn't necessarily about like, no. this painting. No, you this, think of it. Do you yeah, know what I mean? No, it's this very. Facts, is it? I'm quite superstitious about like revising things. I think that shouldn't be done. You should do just do it, and then that's don't don't try don't try and mess with it too much. And is, does that come from this kind of idea of working in quite a live way, quite an instinctive way? Uh, yeah, definitely. De- uh, like, um, I I think as well like. A value of whatever work you do doesn't depend on the, the amount of time or the amount of money. And so, like, like with like Sai Tombley's work, you know, like these works were performed very, very quickly, weren't they? Like in minutes. And I think that like fascinates me, like the the immediacy. 
I mean, and also like with with Sai and Marguerite Duras, they were very. I suppose it's kind of a superstitious thing about people like viewing their work, like like size sculptures. We always described ourselves as a sculptor and a painter from the late fifties, and we'd always try and show people the sculptures in his studio, and no one would really like them. But he kept showing them anyway. And there's a really late interview before he died with Nicholas Sorota where he says, "Well, so what do you think of your sculptures?" How do you rate them? And Sombly, without missing a beat, says, I like 90% of them. So that's pretty high yeah. for an artist to say, you know, I think they're the best work. People didn't get it. Best thing I've ever done. And I also do these paints as well. But, but, like, but you know, it's like the sculptures. Marguerite Duras, like, she makes film. She actually, she's come out and said, like, oh, I've made two new films, but I haven't decided yet if um, anybody's ever going to see them. I don't know. I find that, I find it really interesting in today's art world that, you you know, you'd say something like that. So it's the, but the lost novel or the, you know, that kind of thing is... It, yeah, which it's is... It's interesting for the person to make the choice. Yeah, I don't think you can unless you destroy it because once it's out there, sometimes you lose control. Oh, yeah. It's, you can say it, but actually, you don't have that control, do you? Mm, no. It's quite frightening. It is, yeah. It's, it's, I, I think for, for, for me, it's, that's quite terrifying. Like, yeah. that, like, you know, somebody could take something and, like, after I'm gone... Because it's like we have Claude Cahoon as well on here, don't we? Because mm. uh, Claude's work, and uh, she, I mean, she's interesting for me because obviously, like, um, uh, lesbian, feminist, surrealist, um, Claude was a chosen name. 20s, 30s. 20s, 30s, 40s. Mm. And she exhibited with the surrealist exhibitions in Paris in the 30s and also published her poetry. But the work she's best known for is uh, uh, her self-photography, self-portraiture, which um, it's these photos that were discovered after her death. Nobody knew she'd done them. And what interests me is, like, she didn't present them to anyone. Like, maybe she shared them with her partner. Uh, and then they were discovered after her death, and that's her, her oof now. Um, but obviously they, they represented something completely different that was very personal and, and like, quite ritualistic. For some reason, she, she ended up living in Nazi-occupied Jersey during the war. They were producing anti... Like, her and her partner were producing anti-Nazi propaganda, which, like, they'd go to, like, rallies, like, they'd have, and dress up in, like, Nazi uniform as men. And, like, they got caught eventually because they were... Um, well, sort of a, a sort of reverse pickpocketing... So they'd, the, they'd, take, the they'd make like anti-Nazi like flyers and they'd stick them in the Nazis' yeah. coats. And, but no, they, were, they, they got caught and uh, they were tortured by the Nazis and they never recovered from the torture and she died as a result. Which, I, I don't know, it's very sad. Um, but yeah, these, these works, like, like you said, like, you know, she had no control yeah. over and never made any money yeah. from her work. <coughs> Fame or success is relative. We've talked about that a lot. The idea of going and then being a big deal after you're gone is is probably the the worst, most terrible thing ever, isn't it? Uh, like it depends on what your beliefs in the afterlife That's are. That's true. Or like, I mean, people can think. Yeah. Do you think what people think about a piece of work is is fine? But maybe there's a there's a monetary thing that when something becomes a commodity and gets changed, then then there's an issue there, isn't there? Oh yeah, I think yeah. that I think that's terrible, and I think it might especially be true for like marginalized artists. 
as well. Your work takes on like a second life. We, we're going to talk about John Waters at some point, or yeah, did I cross that out? <laughs> but like, 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 you've seen Pekka. Yeah. But it's, it's like that, like, you know, like people making work in their own community that can happen and it happens all the time. Yeah, it's, it's local, isn't it? He, well, yeah, he's still, you it's know, he's, just, he keeps yeah. true to Baltimore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Swansea could be... I'm, I'm, I'm sure Swansea's on the power of Baltimore. Swansea's more San Francisco, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what song would you like to have written if you could have written any song? The only answer, like, I, like, I can't really do an artist talk without having Dolly Parton. I mean, she's... Let's, let's face it, let's be serious. Is there an artist greater, any deeper, any, like, like, like a song? She's written, like, a thousand songs. Uh, but no, the, the song is um, it's not a well-known Dolly Parton song. She writes a lot of songs, which are right, like, like this is amazing. Like, like um, yeah, there's one called Shattered Image, which let's sing. So it's... I used to sit for hours as a kid and dangle my feet off an old flat bridge. Seeing my reflection in the water below, I'd shatter my image with the rocks I'd throw. Shatter my image with the rocks I'd throw. Which, like, that's, that's some deep stuff. And, like, the third verse is, if you live in a glass house, don't throw stones. I forgot. If you live in a glass house, don't throw, don't throw stones. Um... It's something about, like, don't, don't like, comment on my reflection till you look at your own. Uh, seeing your reflection in your house of glass. Uh, don't open my closet if your own's full of trash. Stay out of my closet if your own's full of trash. I mean, that's, that's, that's great. That says everything to me. Yeah. She also writes songs about, like, there's a great one um, called Evening Shade. And it's about... Like, they're, they're all, like, you know, songs, they're great stories in, in a lot of them. But, like, it's about, like, um, these children in, like, a, like um, an orphanage. And, like, the, the woman who runs the orphanage is, like, really, really mean and beats them and stuff until they're, like, half dead. And then one day, uh, Dolly decides, like, she goes and steals the can of kerosene. And they wait until the old lady who runs the orphanage is taking her afternoon nap. And they burn the orphanage down and it's gone. It's great stuff. Previous to the studio, you were working back at home? In the house, yeah. In the house, yeah. So sort of the change from like a domestic space to a studio space and kind of experimenting. I suppose, you know, you still go out and perform although you're working domestically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just interested in that, how significant the change was from going somewhere domestic to to sort of something that's set up as a studio. It's a... The thing that sort of strikes when you go in there is how you've divided up these, these spaces. You have a space for sort of contemplation, for lying down, for resting. You have a space for writing. You have a space for, for sort of sitting. You have a space for entertaining. You have your, you know, so you've sort of, and I haven't seen that in... Nobody, um, that surprises other. me, like, because I thought that was like the, the point. Mm. Like you'd have somewhere to go where like you could do, you know, I, you know, I'm, I, need, I need some... I need an oat cake and some peanut butter. It's like, oh, I need to lie down or like. But like, maybe that does come from like, like I'm quite used to and like I quite I, I can be more adapted than I think at working in the house, uh, which is it is a good thing. Like this, because that's the first thing I was thinking of. Like going in, it's like, oh, where can I put my? Where can I put my things? Like, cause I, like I don't know. Like I suppose there's this whole thing like about like when you're in your own domestic space, like, like, you know, like, like, if you go back to Dolly, like, you know, she'd, 
wake up and like you know light the light the fire mm-hmm. and be writing his songs like writing her like thousand songs and there's something I really like about that like but you know we've talked about how there was just mainly writers but like how they would oh yeah like, they like, would um, just in a hotel room away from the children they'd leave the children in a park. And then they go to a hotel and they. Well, you're talking about Maya Angelou, yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. would would um, in order to write like while she was raising her children, like she would like get a hotel room, and go there. And I suppose that's like this, like you know, like it's uh, for me, like I want it to be like a retreat, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like it should be like somewhere where you can go and, and uh, feel the freedom, and like there's yet the other thing. It's like oh, you know, I've got a studio now. I better go and make some work in it, but it has to function on. All these Your different team, levels yeah, as well, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, but do you feel that pressure that you have to go to the studio? Or is it a good? <laughs> well, Cy Twombly said, um, like, like when he was asked why he made his work, um, he responded, "Oh, so I wouldn't have to do it again." Yeah. So there's different levels to that yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what John Waters film would you be? I don't want to be a John Waters film. I want to oh. be a John Waters, um, well, not a character, like, like. Uh, I, I want to be Cookie Mueller again. I don't know if anybody's familiar with uh, the work of Nan Golding, and and you know Cookie was one of her muses. She never really like you know she was in a few films, but like she's one of my favourite writers. She had like this crazy, like sort of jet set in life, and you know crazy life like part partying, drugs, and like you know she was really like switched on like uh, and like I say one of my favourite writers of all time. Um, but also she was just like very earthy. So yeah, like like maybe like I, I can't describe Cookie like unless you knew her or know her work. But I can I can do a short reading. Um, I had two lovers and I wasn't ashamed. The first was Jack. He was seventeen and I was fifteen. The skin of his face was so taut over protruding bones that I feared for his head. The same sympathetic fear one has for the safety of an egg. He wore his black hair all greased up with pieces spiralling down into his languid eyes. Jack owned only black clothes and wore his uh, cigarettes in the rolled-up sleeves of his black T-shirts, showing off his solid pecs, which were big for a skinny person. Once I visited him in, in hospital, he had infectious hepatitis and sclerosis of the liver, resulting from his four-year bout with alcoholism. He didn't look too good in there, all yellow, in a murky blue private room. His visitors had to wear hospital gowns and surgical gloves, also masks over their nose and mouths, uh, which really frustrated him because everyone looked so morose and sinister with our eyes. My nose and lips were the first nose and lips he had seen in two weeks. After his mother left, I whipped off not only my mask and gown, but my pants and hopped into the hospital bed with him. I wasn't afraid. I'd been as intimate as I could be right up until the time he got sick, but I kept my rubber gloves on anyway. He was very sick, quite contagious, and looked ill, but sexy, like pictures of Proust on his deathbed. I was in love, and we were teenagers going steady. Uh, He had been expelled from high school for bringing in real moonshine, corn liquor, from his uncle's still in West Virginia, and he'd gotten all his best friends drunk on the lunch break and tried to beat up on his American history teacher when the man had dumped out Jack's liquor. Jack had a black Impala convertible with red-rolled and pleated bucket seats and racing cams, dual exhaust, tyre slicks, a roll bar, liquor pipes, uh, big foam dice hanging from the rear-view mirror and four on the floor, of course. He drank slow gin or Laird's Applejack or sometimes Thunderbird uh, when he couldn't find anything else. He ate Bernie's 
uh, like little candies. He called them crossroads because of the X on them. This other lover of mine was Gloria. She sat three rows in front of me in an algebra class. I watched her hairdos from the back. Every day they were different. Beehives, barrel curls, airlifts, pixies, flips, French twists, uh, bubbles, double bubbles. The thing I liked best were uh, the way her scalp shone through all the teasing, uh, as if her head were a mango, and the spit curls pasted down beside her ears with clear fingernail polish. She also had bitten to the quick fingernails. I even liked the warts and nicotine stains on her index and second fingers. On her, all this was heaven. I began spending Saturday nights with Gloria when Jack had bloody cut eyes from fights. Uh, when he went into the hospital, I stayed with her for a whole weekend. I slept in her single bed in her prefab parents' house, and at first um, she used to feel me up. She kept telling me, just pretend I'm Jack, just pretend I'm Jack. In the beginning, the controlling was necessary, but in the weeks that followed, I didn't have to pretend she was Jack anymore. Jack and Gloria liked each other, and no one ever suspected anything about Gloria and myself. For appearances, we were best girlfriends, both of us with our combustible hairdos, sprayed with lacquer and teased high as possible. We wore the tightest black skirts, so tight they hobbled us. Black stockings, white blouses, ruffles at the neck and cuffs, pointy black bras underneath, and five-inch um, spike heels. With these shoes and the hair, we were the tallest people in the school. Lesser women, women would have become acrophobic. We made people dizzy when they saw us. We clicked down the high school hallways in our spikes. These shoes I had to keep in my school locker to change into when I got there in the mornings. My mother made me wear flats to school. When Jack was in the hospital, we picked up guys together, smoked a lot of cigarettes, sniffed glue, and drank codeine um, turpin hydrate cough syrup for the buzz. I stopped seeing Jack and took his initial ring off uh, when he went to jail for B&E, breaking and entering uh, charge. I stopped seeing Gloria when she got pregnant and decided to marry Ed, her long-time boyfriend, who she kept telling me she uh, didn't love nearly as much as she loved me. Years later, I found out that Jack, who was always pretty literate, was on methadrine, writing a novel, never able to drink again because of his liver. As for Gloria, that girl, born of a light bulb, it seemed, had died when she had gotten silicone injections for her little... It had spread all over her body, making tiny lumps arrive, arise on every inch of her skin, until finally it entered her pulmonary arteries and the aorta, and she died of a silicone heart. So that's pretty much why I write scenes or do any writing. If you can do that, you can do, you can write about anything, can't you? <laughs>